So our reading today will be 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 through 14. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for His name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know Him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know Him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the Word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. This is the Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Pastor John. And um, I don't want to embarrass him, but uh, today is John's birthday, so give him a hug after service. Uh, happy birthday, John. Happy birthday. I believe he is uh, 42 years old, so happy birthday. Happy birthday, John. I'll tell you, talk about being into a birthday celebration. My goodness. Started last week. It's been going. John's gospel, or excuse me, not his gospel, John's letter, this sermon. It's interesting because there's so many opinions on, on, on what the book of 1 John is. It's a bit of an enigma. Um, a lot of times when you read through a passage or a Bible text, it'll be very linear. You know, they'll kind of start out and tell you what they're going to tell you, right? Like you, you learn to do in college or in a public speaking class, right? Here's what you're going to learn. And then you show it to people as they go and you remind them, right? Because we have Terrible attention spans. Some of you are already thinking about putting up your Wordle post of the day. <laughs> if you know, you know. Um, but First John, at first, can seem like it's all over the place. It feels a little bit chaotic. And, and in a sense, it kind of grabs your attention, right? It, it grips you and you say, what is, what is this craziness? What am I reading? What is John talking about? And, and so it's been described, I think, fairly well as, as circular. In fact, I saw a really interesting graphic that had like the main idea in the center, and then it went through all these passages about how it would circle back through similar concept as it continues to refine its message. And a lot of times, if you can imagine a graphic that's like, a, like an inverted cone, it's not that, it's, it's, it's otherwise. It starts with a small perspective, and as he spins around these topics, it gets wider and wider, and at the bottom falls out this really full perspective on what it means to follow after Christ, what it means to live your life as a Christ follower, as, as, as someone who is a believer. Um, and, and I love that terminology, right, a believer, uh, because it really just doesn't do justice to what it means to be found in Christ. Um, if you read the book of Job, you see uh, God is actually talking with Satan about what's going on. And Satan says, I've been going to and fro on the earth. And so Satan himself is a believer in God and that he knows he exists. Um, we, we, read about, we read about him as having been a beautiful guardian cherub angel who was cast down like a profane thing. You can see that in uh, Ezekiel, Ezekiel or Isaiah, Ezekiel, I think. 
uh, cast down from God's presence. And so being a believer in a way that describes our salvation is, is much different than just an academic acknowledgement that, that there's a God and that that God has a plan for people and he sent Jesus who is the Christ and who is the captain of salvation and who, who died for our forgiveness. It's, it's then we repent and, and repentance is described as turning away from. So what we turn away from is trusting ourselves we turn towards trusting God. We trust that the finished work of Christ is all that it takes to bring us back to God. And so we now then have Jesus as our Lord because we're turned from facing and trusting ourselves and we're turned towards something, which is faith in God. And in a sense, we undo the original sin, which was doubting God at his word. So we turn towards trusting God at his word. That's life in Christ. And John refines that very well. Um, John inspires us now as we move in chapter 2, picking up in verses 12 through 14. There's a bit of a, a shift in mindset. Whereas John was talking about talking to us about following the law, uh, which we said is, is the law as Christ explained it, as the law as Christ taught, towards enduring, having a life that endures the test of time. And that can sound like drudgery. Right? Enduring the test of time. Endurance doesn't sound like fun, right? Endurance is like a, a marathon. And I have a, I have a friend who's a very good runner, um, qualified for the Boston Marathon a few times, and he just hates to watch me run. He said, John, watching you run is awful. You run so badly. It physically looks painful. Uh, he said, as I said, hey, can you help me get ready for this Philly half marathon? So he ran the full, I ran the half. I think we finished at the same time. Um, and he's, he was explaining to me what it's like to be in the front of a marathon. He said, dude, it is the strangest thing that you'll ever see. He said, you'll see people on the side of the road crying, asking why they're doing this to themselves. Um, it's just an emotional mess. That's not the endurance of the Christian life. The endurance of the Christian life is a kind of a basking and a going along. It's not to say it isn't work. It's not to say that we stand under the spout where the glory pours out and God gives us all that we can handle and then even more. You open the mailbox and there's a check inside every time. You say what you want and it just appears like some kind of a genie. You know, rub a bottle and out comes Aladdin. The Christian life is knowing that we're more than conquerors. The Christian life is knowing that Jesus said, on the cross, it is finished, meaning there's nothing left, meaning you bring nothing to this story. You bring nothing that completes your salvation. And so then we, as obedient servants of Christ, get to walk in the reality of the newness of our life in a, in a, with a death that has no sting. And so our endurance then is our joy as we work to live in the commandments of God as Christ explained them. And so that's what John encourages us for. And he wants us to get excited in the way that he presents this to us. And we should be excited to take on the task of enduring in Christ. And so we're, what we're encouraged by as we, as we turn now to uh, verses 12 through 14, what we're encouraged by is the endurance that's more than just a fleeting feeling that comes up at a conference, right? While, while one song is glued together by a, by a pianist and instrumentals and, and all kinds of things happen around you and the lights are dim and everything is designed to make you react in a certain way. This is not the endurance that John 
is calling us towards. This is the kind of endurance that will withstand the pressures of a life in a fallen world where people die, where their bodies wear out, where they will hurt you, where wrongs will happen around you, where murder and lies exist. That's the reality of the world that we're in. That's why scripture presents such a realistic picture. It's not some soft, flighty picture of life. As believers, we're described as vessels that are pressed on every side, but not crushed. John, the beloved disciple, who sat next to Jesus at the Last Supper, it was a half table, right? It was a half table with chairs. This was the Last Supper. Who remained at the foot of the cross, who Jesus himself trusted to care for his mother, who saw the empty tomb personally, who was with Jesus by the lake and is now authoritatively qualified to write about the impacts of abiding in Christ. And he excites us forward. Verse 12, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. This is this breakout structure. It kind of starts the transition of thought from initial faith, believing, understanding that we should have a desire for living out Christ's commandments into now doing that, walking that out, living out Christ's commandments. It moves the person that's reading from the life of initial salvation into one that endures in Christ. And it doesn't leave you in any season. Um, seasonality in the Christian life is interesting. Our bodies wind down. Um, I, I'm at the initial parts of my life where sleeping in bed hurts me. You know, when I get up in the morning, like I have to take a few check steps. It takes at least, I think, about 16 steps before I'm fully upright, you know. And so there's all this seasonality to our life, which can feel discouraging, right? You're not able to do the same things as your life goes on that you were able to before like staying up past 9 p.m. Some of you know what I mean. Some of you are like, that's lame. Go ahead, call me, see if I'm awake. Moves the reader for a life of endurance in Christ and, and really talks about, I, I would argue, as he presents conversation to fathers, as he presents conversation to younger men, as he presents conversation to children, um, I think the general sense of all that is these seasons of our lives. The seasons of our lives are different. Uh, what's, what's, on the, what's on our minds in the, in the middle section of our lives is different than what's on our minds in the latter sections of our lives. And we see all over Scripture, uh, the, the, there's roles in the church, in the body for younger and older people. Um, in this life, we can feel sometimes like we're defined by either being younger, we're defined by being older, or we're defined by being stuck in the middle, right? You're never young enough to be cool, you're never old enough to be respected. But in the grand scheme of things, someone that was alive 2,000 years ago would probably scoff at you feeling like you're older, right? Um, and the relevance of it is important in the church, right? We, we see the Titus 2, older women are, are taught to teach younger women, likewise older men with 
younger men. There's a role for everyone in the church. When, the, when someone becomes a new believer, now if you're not a believer this morning, stick with me. I hope this happens for you. If you are a believer, think back and laugh. If you're a new believer, you're going to think, what? And you're going to be angry. All right. But here's what happens when you first become saved. Um, invariably, your mind will be blown away by the Scripture. That really doesn't fade, but it'll be crazy. Um, I remember reading this within, I don't know, days or a week, and then starting back over. Be like, that was crazy. I'm going to do that again. And then you won't be quiet. There's a sense in which that's great, because you go out and you talk to everybody, but you're also insane, and you say crazy things. Um, For some people, that wanes. For others, it sticks. And all you want to do is learn, and that's fantastic. All you want to do is learn, and that's great. And that's what the body is here to do. We want to come alongside you. I promise you, there is no shortage of groups of people meeting around, home groups, Bible studies, coffee shops, people that will talk to you, email you, text you. Um, we, like, I have so, several small little text groups of people. I have one called J4, which is um, John, John, Jim, and Jeroy. Any number of people that are constantly considering things, right? It's incredible what happens when the mind is renewed. When you take on a focus of the world, everything is about the world and the things that are going on around you. Everything is about improving your situation. Everything is about getting respect from the people around you. Everything is about kind of personally advancing whatever your agenda is. And then Christ interrupts all of that and violates your will and allows you by his grace that you can see the holiness of God. And holiness is a give up word, okay? Holy just means just different. So indescribably different, we put a label on it and just we just say holy. That's how separate and different from us that God is. That's what sin does. And it's not your fault. It's not my fault. We're born into a condition that God is completely aware of. Uh, We call it original sin, which is to say that our original parents, Adam and Eve, um, lived and they did not fully trust God. And the result of that was a separation from God. And that separation was was forever. Um, But God put a time limit, an expiration on our lives so that we wouldn't live eternally separated from Him, so that our lives would come to an ending period. And then inside that that time, from our birth to our expiration, uh, God is constantly... Um, providing us with a picture of himself from the sunrise and the sunset in the morning to animals that, you know, it's like old school video games, like you would show up in a frame and everything would just kind of start moving again, right? Because you were there and you had to watch it. All of life happens all around us and we're not even there to appreciate it. Does a tree make a sound when it falls in the forest and no one's around? Yeah, sure. Give me the argument about ears able to hear it, whatever. All of these things are happening in the world. And I think one of the greatest humbling things is sleep. You go to sleep at night, and everything is still completely fine. I know you feel like you hold everything together in your universe, right? That if you aren't paying attention to and keeping up with all of the demands, that it all is going to fall apart. But God is so great that he animates and keeps everything going. All of life still continues, even without your effort. The earth still moves at the right rate of speed. The distance is maintained from the sun. And God is sovereign and powerful. We talked this morning about Colossians. Everything is held together by the power of his word, which means if he stopped holding it together, it's not that it would slowly wind down. It just wouldn't exist anymore. It would no longer be. And so God has a purpose for it. And we're encouraged in verse 12 
that John is writing to you, little children, because of our sins and their forgiveness for his namesake. The careful Bible student you are, depending upon the translation of the scriptures in front of you, you may have noticed that it says, as we look through verses 12 through 14, I am, I am, then I write, I write. The tense moves around on us a little bit. And then there's not always, little children aren't always included, right? When you get to, uh, when you get to verse 14, it ends up on young men. Where did the little kids go, right? It's adults and young men. What is John doing? It's that circular, chaotic feeling writing that he has that excites us forward. It makes us lean in, makes us ask questions. One of my favorite passages in all of Scripture, um, Jesus has gone to the cross. He's died for sin. Uh, he has not ascended yet, and he's walking around on earth. And in some scenarios, he's not letting people realize who he is. Is he the gardener? I don't know who he is. And so he's walking with these people, right, who say to Jesus, they're not able to see who he is. They say to him, haven't you heard about everything that's happened? And he's like, no, tell me. And then he starts teaching them from the scriptures as they're walking down the road. And when this account is over, they're, they're, they're so amazed by what's happened. They said, did not our hearts burn within us as he taught us the scriptures? This, this text, this living word, this scripture, this Bible would have been what he was teaching from, right? It's not like he, he there was no something else. There was no hidden knowledge that he was giving them privately. He was teaching from the word. The word is incredible. When we start to see God for his glory and who he is, it's awesome and it's amazing. And so there's been a lot of conversation over the, over the years on why the tense moves. Um, I, I'll say this, I think, it's, um, I, I think it's a bit of a kind of a pulling our mind forward, right? So like I said, John is transitioning from talking about um, uh, you know, following after Christ's teaching and then encouraging us into a life of following after. I think he's just kind of drawing us along, right? He's not linear, he's circular, he comes back, he'll come back and he'll work on following after God a little bit more. And so he's bringing our mind forward. The reader would have been used to seeing all these different tenses and moods. Um, they would have understood exactly what John was pulling them into. And like I said, depending on, your, on the translation, the English translation that you read, it may switch tenses, it may not. Um, I can't, I, John, do you have NASB or are you NIV? NIV? Hmm? NASB. So I think it's NIV then that does not uh, change tense. John encourages us that it's for his namesake, Jesus's namesake. Our sins are forgiven for the sake of Jesus's own name. Jesus' name reflects all that he is. It's a reflection of who he is. It's, he is fully God and fully man because he set aside the glory of being together with the Father so that he could step down into flesh and live in always like us because there was no blood of bulls and goats that would be finally enough to bring about salvation. There was always more requirement. Because we, we read in the Old Testament that without, without blood, there's no remission. There's no forgiveness for sin. And so constantly people are coming back to the priests and having these animals sacrifice. And all of these things are happening year after year. All of these feasts and sacrifices. Um, going into the Holy of Holies on the right schedule with the right garb. 
is all pulling forward an understanding of who Christ is. And so when the substance of Jesus on the cross saying, it is finished, having said he didn't bring a new command, but that he came to satisfy every jot and every tittle, is why the book of Hebrews then would say, with a new priesthood comes a new law. And so we are now under Christ's law as members of the church, as saints of the body, in the age of the church, following after Christ as our head. John desires that we be excited about that. Maybe he's writing or preaching to a church of people who are being tried by the lie of some hidden, deep truth. He encourages them that in Christ, your sins present for they as they read them, and future for they as they read them, and past for they as they read them, are continually given over to Jesus. Nothing is hidden away. No, no mechanism, no lever, no knowledge, no kind of secret prayer that you need to do, no level of an order that you need to go to, no special pants or jewelry. The Word in Christ, His namesake, You would see it in the Gospels if you look in Matthew 10, 22, about Jesus' namesake. He says that you will be hated by all for my namesake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Revelation 2, 3 reveals, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary in Psalm 25, 11, For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. This healthy perspective of what sin is helps us to appreciate all that Christ did, finally. With an end, with a period to the sacrifice, with a period to the, the need to return to God for the blood, for the remission of sin, it was done perfectly on Christ in whom there was no sin. The ultimate picture, the spotless lamb, the satisfaction of what God would require. John started off this second chapter, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Our advocate is Jesus. He advocates on our behalf. The enemy, Satan, who would desire to see people accused and caught in sin, would, would find an advocate on our behalf when he brings a claim against us. In Christ, what are you going to say to that? Those little children who are receiving these things are those who found faith in Christ. Those who found their sins before a holy God and Jesus as their mediator, their way to be reconnected to their God in a saving way, in an eternal way. Jesus was the advocate. We see Philippians 2, 9-11. through 11. Therefore, God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on the earth and under the sun, 
and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus emptied himself of all of the glory that was rightly his, accepted, chose, took on the role of Savior. He subjected himself to human form. You can't under uh, underappreciate taking on human form. Paul described our bodies as like a tent. He just wanted to, he wanted to take it off, right? He had a thorn in his side, whatever whatever that was, some ailment, um, like a Lego in the foot times ten, or you know wrapping your pinky toe around the coffee table. Just those moments that cause you to open your mouth and want to yell, but the pain is so great you cannot. Having a, a physical form, to have stepped out of glory into this. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. And so it's not that Jesus kind of grounded out and suffered through. It was his joy to bring many to salvation. It was his joy to do it. You can imagine uh, suffering at the hands of sinners being mocked, ridiculed, spat on, lashed, having flesh torn away from his ribs at the hands of people that perhaps he was taking the wrath for their sins in that moment. And it's his joy. Psalm 27 that is chapter 20 and verse 7. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of our Lord, our God. That should give you peace. I mean, you really don't have to look very far in the world to understand that there is such a, uh, such a thing as this opposition between good and evil, right and wrong. Very real concepts. There's some things that you can't describe without saying that it was, frankly, evil. And evil can only exist if it's in opposition to perfect good, which is God. Psalm 32, verse 1. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. That's certainly true. You are only able to be described as blessed when your transgression is forgiven and your sin is covered, the, the gravity and the weight of your transgression, like th that word transgressing means that there's an object that you are doing wrong against. And that object that you're doing wrong against is God himself. Not following, breaking the law isn't some winking away of a rule that God made up just to see if you're good or not. It is battling against his very character and nature. God's character is described as love. And so when we hate towards other people, we violate his character. Not only do we violate his character, we orient ourselves in a position of hatred towards someone that he created and has a special love for. 
Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven and whose sin is covered. Notice the word covered. Uh, our sin is not winked away, is paid for on Christ. That's your past sins from the moment that you see God as holy and turn to Christ as Savior and turn to following after God. And then that's the future sins that John already told us in this first chapter that Jesus is there for. Um, we don't revel in the fact that we will sin in the future. We desire to follow after God. We desire that when we're in a place of sinning against God, that the Holy Spirit would remind us of that because we don't want to be walking in sin. We don't want to be walking in darkness. We want to be growing in glory, sanctified more and more after the image of Christ every day. But how incredible that God would save us. It's like, if you've ever read the book of Hosea, if you haven't, read it. If you have, read it again, because that's a picture of us. That God tells a man to go marry a prostitute who will turn on him, who will sell herself back into prostitution. And not only that, he will then go and get her and pay money for her and bring her back, and she will do that to him again. Know rightly who you are in that story. You're not the righteous one going to buy someone back. You're the harlot. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. That's all we have. And we should want nothing more. When you see the reality of holiness, we should want nothing more than our God. Verse 13, I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the father. Now, I think it's actually helpful to read that backwards, uh, a little bit bottom up, to understand how these different age classes are being used. So he writes to the children because they know the Father. This is the entry point. Knowing and being known by the Father comes in Christ. That's, the, that's where we find ourselves when we first become a believer. Okay, I know God. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. So then we start to walk in victory in our lives to varying degrees. But ultimately, the victory is in Christ, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. And then finally, I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. This is an experiential knowledge. You've got some history to fall back on. So when, the, when, when someone who is first saved needs some, some knowledge, they need to learn from the scriptures, you lean in and you help them. And if you're looking at me saying, well, I'm not ready to do that yet, say, well, get ready to do that because I get so tired of that excuse. I'm not ready to disciple someone. Yes, you are, and stop it. It's really not that big of a responsibility. You're just pushing that off and trying to sound holy. Don't lie to yourself and don't lie to me. I still love you, though. You're just lazy. I'm writing to you, young men, because you've overcome the evil one. Now, if you've ever known a young man in your life or if you've ever been one, you know, they get really encouraged by that, right? We want to charge. We want to storm. We want to overtake. And in the middle of our life, we've got all kinds of energy. Young men, young women, we have all kinds of energy to do all kinds of things. We take on all these tasks and we do all this stuff. We need to be reminded that we've overcome the evil one already in the future. We've already overcome the evil one. And later, 
he'll continue to excite us by describing how it is that we've done that. And finally, fathers, maybe in the back half of our lives, we get a little lazy. We start to get excited by retirement. Start to think, well, retirement just means nothing. It means I watch Wapner every day, 6 p.m., right? Settle into the couch, flip on the TV, watch a little bit of tube, and just waste my life away until gradually my body gives out and I'm dead. You know the one who is from the beginning. Be in the word. Be a part of the body. Disciple people. And so he's encouraging folks on from a place of initial faith towards movement. Move through the seasons of life. Participate, grow, be of benefit to the kingdom of God. Now, does that mean you're not saved if you're not doing those things? No, I I don't know. But wouldn't you desire to be functioning as a member of the body in the way that that gives something back to Jesus' church to do the good works that are put before you? And you think, too, about when this book was written. Um, We're probably just within a couple of generations of Christ. And so the purity of the early church is very important. That right doctrine is carried on into next generations is, is critical. Some of the older men that might have been reading this could have perhaps been followers of Christ. Certainly we're within a generation. I'm writing to you, fathers, older members of the church, because you know the fuller doctrine. You've been taught it, and you've lived in it, and you've got some experience from it. And so when a younger believer says, I just feel so flat by this life, You yell at them and tell them to be encouraged in Christ. No. You talk to them about how you've endured, how you've experienced. You talk to them from your own trials and your own tribulations. And you stop giving the perspective that you're so perfect. You talk to them from the place of your failures. Here's where I've failed and God has seen me through it. Here's where I've struggled and God has seen me through. God is always the hero because God's the hero. I remember a young man telling me once, I'm going to start going to church, you know, once I kind of get some things figured out because, gosh, everybody there has it figured out. And I'm like, dude, are you in, what room are you in? I know these people. Nobody has it figured out. J.I. Packer said, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worships and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. That's a great way of understanding the Christian life. Being a child of God, being found in Christ, having Jesus as the advocate for your sins, not trying to stand on your own. What a ridiculous thing. To think that you're going to stand before a holy and righteous God and describe away your sin with good works? Think that you made sandwiches for people who didn't have sandwiches, I guess? Like, I, I don't understand. But God, I participated in a homeless ministry. I carried a Ziploc bag with toothbrushes and toothpaste and little bars of hotel soap everywhere I went. I'm in, right? We are adopted into the family of God, grafted, found in Christ. And seen as Jesus' righteousness. Now, if that doesn't 
blow your mind. That when God looks on us, He sees Christ. I am really, really thankful for that. Like, really, really thankful for that. That should excite us forward to know that we're seen in Christ before a holy God. It should excite us forward. Pressing on from victory to victory, from initial faith through some victory in the evil one and on into deep experiential knowledge of God. You know, the knowledge that only comes with time. Um, I'm thankful for YouTube because I can now do anything. I'm not really sure what we did before YouTube. And it's really not that old. But I can literally do almost anything now because of YouTube. I mean, I don't think there's a single thing that I might want to do that there's not a tutorial video on YouTube for. Um, I once changed the radiator on our minivan. Some of you know this with a tutorial video that someone had put on by a 12-year-old girl. I'm not lying. The kids came in the garage and like, Dad, what are you doing? I'm like, I don't know, man, but she's got a video showing me how to get this crazy radiator out of this Dodge van, which is always breaking. And I did it. You ever, you ever, if you if you don't sleep well, you know what I mean. You see the videos of the guys that are like building a pool in the jungle using like like only primitive tools. Um, you can do anything on YouTube, but I'm going to promise you this: you put me next to an auto mechanic who's been working on Dodge vehicles and and you know have plenty of opportunity to fix Dodges. So a Dodge mechanic and me with my 12-year-old friend on YouTube, they're going to laugh at me and they're going to have the thing done while I'm still in there cutting my arms up trying to dig the radiator out because they have experience. They know how this really works. And so the Christian life is like that. We have the scriptures. We can know who God is. We can understand that Christ is our mediator. But until we've lived through a little bit of life and had a failure or two, And I don't just mean like you stubbed your toe and you said a potty word. I mean like a failure where you feel laid bare in front of God and you've realized I can still approach God in Christ. That's the experience of being a Christ follower that happens over time. And we're supposed to be in all of these phases. We're in the American microwave culture, right? We can't even wait for a full 30 seconds to go off before we get our lukewarm coffee out of the microwave. You open the door early, right? You want everything right now. I get it, right? Grubhub's not at the door uh, with, with my Subway sandwich. It's Burrito Gate all over again. It's Chipotle Gate all over again. The payment for our sin on our behalf and a life lived in that reality is a blessing. Every day that we, I hear people all the time say, Lord, come quickly. I mean, I get that. But there's people who don't know Christ yet, right? Um, and, and, you know, we can, we can put on a political hat and get so mad at the world because they don't see things politically the way you do. Stop that. I want to encourage you to read Psalm 2. Um, that, was, that was a big one for me this week. Just thinking about God's perspective on all of this life. I like this, this illustration that I, I read really recently. It's, um, I know you don't know what a prairie is because 
what's a, what's a prairie, right? So imagine a large area full of tall grasses in like Wisconsin or somewhere like that, right? And there's a, a dad and his daughter are kind of walking through the prairie and there's a windstorm that's blowing up and fire starts to come through the prairie and the dad knows we're, we can't outrun this. It, it, it will overtake us and we'll die. And so the only way to get through this is to burn the immediate ground around them. All of the dry growth around them to, to burn it, to you know, back burn towards this fire. Because what happens when the fire rages up to the edges, the ground is already spent. There's no more fuel. That there's a, in that picture is how we live as Christ followers. We just stand on the ashes where Christ has already forgiven us for our many failures. There's nothing left. Christ is advocating for us. There's no accusation against us. He paid for it. He paid for the sins of the elect on the cross. It's not that God generally said, well, let me wink at sin. We'll, we'll send Jesus to the cross. He'll suffer for sin generally. And then anybody who's good enough to see that they need a Savior can benefit from that. So it's like a salvation pool that's available. Jesus paid for our specific sins, past present, and from our perspective, future, on the cross. And so the ground for accusation is spent. It's already been burnt out. This is the Christian life. And so in the same way, we stand on the ashes where Christ has already been. And so John excites the young men who might want to rely on their strength. He said, no, 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 you've already conquered the evil one, but it wasn't by you, it was by Christ. There's a creed that we call the Nicene Creed uh, from 320, I almost said 725, 325 um, AD. It addressed a heresy that basically said that you know, Jesus really couldn't be God for all kinds of reasons. But like he, he felt emotions towards people, right? He wept one time, so uh, can't be God. Pretty lame argument. And so a creed resulted from this council at Nicaea and, and Constantinople, and the creed, part of the creed read like this, God of light, light of light, very God of God. I love that in part, very God of God. That's who we're found in. When we see the holiness of God, we repent of our sins, we turn towards trusting in Christ, we're found in the very God of God. He has spent the ground under our feet. There's no accusation left for our sin, past, present, future. And then all that we're distracted by is following him. There should be nothing left to distract us in this life. We just want to follow after him. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. The forgiveness of God, the forgiveness of our sins, the knowledge of God, these things are linked in an unbreakable way. And the, bound, the, 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 the bond is found in the name of Christ. There's no other way to God but by the man Christ Jesus. That means zero other ways. Deepak Chopra doesn't have another way. Oprah does not have another way. Um, uh, Stephen Hawking didn't have another way. Not through intellect, not through magic. The man Christ Jesus. This is God's plan. Jesus is plan A, and there is no plan B. 
In Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34, we read, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers, on the day when I took them by the hand, bringing them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. God's plan has always been the same. He's not adjusting and keeping up his plan based on how we move. He is bulldogging it through all of this life. He is a forth teller, not a foreteller. He says what will be, not what he thinks is going to happen. There's a gentleman named Kenneth Woost, who is a Greek scholar. He, um, he, uh, he was gifted to me uh, by my friend Sid. And I really like the way that he translates verse 13. Um, so if you're bored tonight, open to the front of your Bible. Um, and, and there will be something in there probably called something like translation notes or, or something like that. And it will explain the type of Bible translation you have. It will say whether it's word for word, if it's a sense. Um, but Woost works to expand out the sense of the language and sometimes can be interesting when there's some tricky things happening. So he translated this verse like this. I am writing to you, fathers, because you have come to know experientially the one who is from the beginning and as a present result are possessors of that knowledge. I am writing to you, young men, because you have gained the victory over the pernicious one and as a present result are standing on his neck. I write to you, little children, under instruction because you have come to know the Father experientially with the present result that you are possessors of that knowledge. Verse 14, I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. I think I said that First John confounds people a little bit, and I love that about this book. It's not linear. It's not straight up. It's not easy grammar. It's not a very clear line of thought, but it's also not chaos, and it's also not unknowable. It is designed to snap our attention and say, wait a minute, what's, what's going on here? What is he saying? What is this deeper encouragement to the Christian life that he talks about? He grabs our attention. In verse 12, he wrote to the children. In verse 13, to the fathers, the young men, and the children. And verse 14 pulls us on. Simply writing to the fathers and to the young men, but the children fall off. The young men are enduring in the faith and strong in the word of God abides in them. And this is forever locked into the scripture. So it's not just to 
this immediate audience here, he describes these people who are victorious as having the word of God abiding in them. And that's what carries them forward. It's a, uh, the idea is that it's a welcomed resident within them, the word of God. You desire that it's there. You want it to be present. Um, maybe, maybe you've experienced before seasons where you approach your scripture reading and devotion time differently. Maybe you've experienced different feelings in life and different successes and failures based on how you approach your time of devotion and scripture reading. Psalm 119.11 says that I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Um, I think it was John Piper that described scripture memory verses of varying lengths as being like small daggers and long swords. I had some buddies one time that took on memorizing the book of James. So if any of you can do that, we'll have you uh, come up for announcements one day and do that. Memorize the book of James. Maybe John's next birthday we'll do it for his celebration. The younger believer is encouraged and excited. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 15, we read, But as for you, continue in what you have learned, having, been, having firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. This is abiding in the word. It's how we move from youth towards maturity. And that's what John wants the reader's mind to be penned towards. He starts out in the first chapter talking about obedience and faithfulness, and then he continues now pulling them forward into a concept of scriptural maturity. Remember, John is the qualified disciple of Christ to talk about the power of obedience and abiding. The beloved disciple who sat next to Jesus at the Last Supper, who remained at the cross, who trusted Jesus to care for his mother, who saw the empty tomb, who sat with Jesus by the lake, and who's now qualified to write about the impacts of abiding in Christ. And he's exciting us on. Each of us, from the moment that you see the holiness of God, and you do a really quick evaluation. Me, on my own merit, compared to this holy standard of God, or me, covered by Christ, able to endure the holy standard of God. It is a very short pro-con list when you see that truth. And then each of us from that moment, when we become saved, when we become sealed, when we recognize the salvation that Christ bought for us in that moment, we then begin to grow more and more into Christ's image. It's, just, it's, it's described as progressive sanctification. It happens over time. It's, um, you think of like the refiner's fire. Like I've said before, when I hear the refiner's fire description, I think of you know, this like, cauldron of molten metal bubbling up with impurities in the top, and then they're scraped off and flung to the side, and it's allowed to cool, and it's remelted. This is the Christian life. Impurities in us bubble up. And then we know that we have an advocate in Christ, and we become refined. We give those things over. Our minds become renewed. They are being, being renewed in the Scriptures. 
And that's what John calls us towards here in this second chapter now as we move on from verse 14. He calls us on from hard truth of the Christian life through endurance, which isn't an endurance that's like exhausting, right? And he calls us towards an experiential knowledge, like the one that you gain over a life of experiencing time in the Word. Um, I remember um, a guy named named Paul, uh, Pastor Paul, uh, at my church in, in New Mexico. And Paul was the most encouraging person because you would come to him with some kind of a problem, and he never had great ideas. He was really flat on great ideas. What he had was a brain full of scripture references on the ready where you're like, that's in the Bible? I mean, you could come to this guy with anything. And he'd be like, well, did you hear the story of Jehuz and Beelzebub? And you're like, what? what? And he would bring you to the most amazing description of something that had happened in the scriptures that was, so you're like, wow, that makes so much sense out of my life. That's that life lived in the scriptures. That's that life of someone who's just steeped in the Word of God. That's what we should desire towards, is a life of maturing and growth over time. The life of someone who's just marked by spending time abiding in Christ. And for what reason? So that you can be puffed up with knowledge? No, so that you can be poured out for the benefit of the church. So that you can just soak up and radiate. Like, remember when you were a kid and you'd have glow toys? right? And you'd have to expose it to the light first so that you could then bring it into the dark and see it and play with it? This is what the maturity, the life of a mature believer should be like. It's charged up by presence in front of God and then can go out into a dark world and share from that. And that's what John excites us towards, is growing in the knowledge of God. And now remember, he's in a church that's perhaps battling against a concept of Gnosticism, that there's some secret knowledge, that there's things that you need to do. And he says, you know what you need to do? You need to become a believer in Christ. You need to repent. You need to turn from your sins. You need to follow after Christ. And then you need to live a life like that. You need to live live a lifetime as someone who has their foot on the throat of the enemy because Christ already did it for them. And then experience life knowing that you have an advocate in the event that you sin. And then as you spend time under the tutelage of the Word, experiencing the world around you, absorbing the Word, failing, absorbing the Word, praying, spending time in the Word, then you can share back with the body around you a life from experience, a life marked by the presence of God. No secret language. No specific prayer that we can write the words for. Just you before a holy God, undoing the penalty of sin by looking on Christ as your Savior. If you don't know Christ as Savior, I pray that this morning you would see Him as the holy righteous payment that God intended for us to see. Um, This is plan A and there is no plan B. My prayer is that you would see the holy standard of God as insurmountable, except in Christ, and that Christ is available to you as the captain of your salvation, having lived perfect and always like you, except without sin, and that you would just, you would pray to God, God, save me in Christ, and that you would turn from trusting yourself and your own understanding of the world and just turn to trusting Christ, trusting that the Spirit of God will be in you, trusting the Word of God, and that you'll then walk in Christ, walk 
together with brothers and sisters in the church who will come alongside you and teach you and do experience life together with you. Got to pray if there's anyone who doesn't know you that today that changes. That your son becomes Savior and Lord. God, we thank you that you've given us your word so that we can know you. God, we, we thank you that we thank you that you haven't hidden yourself or we don't have to go and look for you, but God, that you've given us a book comprised of 66 books that was written by more, more than 40 authors over several continents, over huge swaths of time that never met each other, but that tells one story. You're so incredible. I pray that we would grow a hunger for your word and that we would be encouraged to grow in knowledge of your son. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you would stand with us, join us in singing as we close up the service.